0: Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 8th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at today's weather forecast from KCRG. Wintry weather moves in late tonight into tomorrow morning. Winter storm watch issued. Today is quiet as we await the next system coming our way. Plan on highs today into the 40s. This evening, Rain will spread up into eastern Iowa and eventually mix with snow during the overnight hours. Much of the area is under a winter storm watch, with most of the impacts occurring during tomorrow morning's drive. Snowfall rates of about 1 inch per hour look common at the time with totals of 2 to 5 inches, including the potential for a fair amount of sleet to mix in. Ultimately, the transition time of rain versus snow versus sleet will play a huge role in the final total at your house. Regardless of what you wind up with, this snow will have a high moisture content, meaning it'll be heavy and wet. Consider getting it cleared before sunset to avoid it freezing up on you by Friday morning. While the wind is set to increase behind the system, blowing and drifting should be limited due to the wet nature of it. Stay tuned for further updates as this system continues to develop. Today's sunrise is at 7.15 a.m., and the sun sets at 5.32 p.m. Now, looking at the front page of The Courier today, we have these articles to read. Bostwick to serve as Cedar Falls paid consultant. Gaming crash course. Waterloo may Band conversion therapy. And let's begin reading the top story on the page. School funding boost signed. 3% increase will give state's public schools $107 million more next year. Story written by Caleb McCullough of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau, Dateline Des Moines. Iowa K-12 schools will get a 3% funding boost under a bill Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law on Tuesday. After expected reductions in funding to area education associations, the law provides a 106.8 Million dollars more for Iowa's public kindergarten through 12th grade schools. The amount is higher than the 2.5 percent increase Reynolds proposed at the beginning of the session. The bill, Senate File 192, passed the House 59 to 40, with four Republicans breaking with the majority party to vote against the measure. All Democrats voted no, and one Republican Representative David Sheik of Glenwood did not vote. The bill passed in the Senate last week, mostly along party lines, making it eligible for Reynolds's signature. Representatives Chad Ingalls of Randalia, Megan Jones of Sioux Rapids, Brian Loos of Bondurant, and Thomas Moore of Griswold were the House Republicans who voted against the bill. Reynolds signed the bill into law in private on Tuesday, and her office did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Quote, this results in a $1.19 billion increase in K-12 education funding since the year 2012, Reynolds said in a press release. Quote, this investment represents our commitment to an excellent education system for all Iowans, Unquote. Representative Craig Johnson, a Republican from Independence, said he was happy with the funding provided and noted lawmakers had increased school funding by almost $700 million over the past seven years. Quote, Being predictable with what we do here in Iowa is important to us, he said. This bill will do that. Being affordable, we're going to afford this again this year and next year and the year after that, unquote. Democrats protested the funding in floor debate on Tuesday, saying the proposal was not enough to keep up with the rate of inflation and prevent loss of programs and school consolidation. Democrats proposed an amendment that would bump up the funding increase to 5.8%. That amendment failed, 39 to 60. Quote, I know when we're passing and talking about the voucher bill, we had plenty of money, and now all of a sudden this has to fit in our budget, said Representative Sharon Steckman. Democrat from Mason City, quote, our half a million kids need to fit in our budget, unquote. Republican lawmakers in January passed a bill which Reynolds signed into law that allows parents to take advantage of education savings accounts valued at the state's full per-pupil allocation to pay for a private school education. The program is estimated to cost $106.9 million dollars in its first year and 345 million once fully implemented the iowa education association the union representing public school teachers ridiculed the decision to spend millions on private schools while increasing the state aid to public schools by three percent the organization had lobbied for a four percent increase quote it is smoke and mirrors for them to claim our public schools are receiving more funding than ever before. ISEA President Mike Baranek said in a statement on Tuesday, Quote, Public school funding has not kept up with the rising cost of inflation for 12 of the last 13 years. Inflation coupled with fixed costs means that no matter the ebb and flow of a student population, our schools need more funding to provide a robust and healthy student environment, unquote. Democrats in floor debate brought up comments and conversations with school administrators who said their budgets were stretched thin and needed additional state funding. Representative Sue Cahill, a Democrat from Marshalltown, said one superintendent was concerned about the rising cost of fuel and other fixed costs that aren't flexible year over year. Quote, he was at his wit's end, she said. He said, How will we go on in our small school district? Our rural communities and our urban communities are hurting. They have stretched and stretched for the last few years, Over the last decade, funding for Iowa's K-12 public schools has increased by a little over 2% on average each year. A 3% increase would be the highest increase in school funding since the year 2015. The funding would equate to a per-pupil cost for the next school year of $7,635, a $222 increase from the 2022-23 school year. The bill also includes a 3% boost for categorical funds like Teacher Leadership Supplement and Transportation Equity. The increase brings the total state spending on public schools to $3.7 billion. Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley said after the vote that amounts to around 45% of the state's budget. Quote, 45% of a state budget, in my opinion, makes something a priority. When it's taking that much of the budget, he said. Ingalls, one of the Republicans who voted against the bill, said he wanted to see a 4% increase. He also opposed the private school assistance bill in January. Now that the bill has passed, Ingalls said he wanted to find other ways To increase school funding in the legislature. He said he wants to increase the credit given to schools that share administrators, often in rural areas, and boost funding for pre-k education. Quote, given the current budget situation, our support of education savings accounts going forward, I thought we're in a financial position that we could afford more than three percent, Ingalls said. Our next story was written by Andy Malone, Split Cedar Falls Council allows Bostwick to be paid as City's consultant until October 15th, retirement. Dateline Cedar Falls Fire Chief John Bostwick will be allowed to serve as an administrative consultant to the Fire Division while receiving full pay and health insurance benefits until his retirement on October 15th. The City Council voted 4-3. to three in favor of the agreement, following a nearly four-month-long investigation into his management of the paid on-call program. Counselors Gil Schultz, Dustin Ganfield, and Dave Sires dissented. An unnamed employee was paid $24,408, despite reportedly not performing the required number of work hours. It was revealed at the meeting. A recent disciplinary record for Mike Nyman the city's former water reclamation manager and a past firefighter, was provided by city clerk Jackie Danielson, confirming he was the employee who didn't complete those required hours and had retired in lieu of termination as a result of the finding. The discrepancy was discovered by the finance department while preparing for an audit by the insurance services office, the document states. Several members of the public said the agreement terms were part of a generous deal that greatly benefits Bostwick, who they suggest will perform little, if any, work as a consultant. They and some dissenting council members argued Bostwick should be allowed to continue working as chief for the city if he's being paid to be a consultant. The agreement, crafted by the two sides' attorneys, avoids litigation between Bostwick and the municipality. The supporting councillors have said it benefits both sides, and they voted in favor for more than monetary reasons. Those reasons were discussed by the council in closed session. Jim Brown, the city's former mayor, told the council he supported the agreement in part because of Bostwick's length of service. In addition, Bostwick was stuck twisting in the wind the last few months, Brown said. For committing what he believes to be a minor offense. Few details were released about the situation because officials contend they're confidential under state statute, although Bostwick is allowed to share more personally or give his consent to their release. Mayor Rob Green planned to sign the agreement Tuesday. Bostwick, who signed the agreement earlier, has seven days after that to decide if he wants to revoke it. Bostwick makes $5,471 $5,471 every two weeks, or 142259 annually, City Communications Specialist Amanda Husman said in an email, and will continue to receive that compensation in the consultant role. Those responsibilities are stated as fielding calls from leadership on an as-needed and remote basis until October 15th he will be compensated for severance benefits, including remaining sick leave and floating holiday pay, as well as remaining vacation time and accrued vacation from past years, with a monetary value of $124,751, City Treasurer Lisa Roding told the Council. Last-minute amendment requested by Bostwick's legal representation Friday after the council meeting agenda was set also was approved by the council it allows the already earned benefits to be paid out until april 30th 2024 at the latest rather than by the retirement date officials said the monetary amount doesn't change because of the amendment it just won't be paid as a lump sum at the time of his retirement those benefits are owed to him no matter what council members argue Additionally, the investigation led four former battalion chiefs, Kurt Hildebrand, Larry Berman, Roger Stenzland, and Rick Smith, as well as former Captain Michael Buharo, to send the city's elected leaders, including Green, a letter Sunday alleging similar possible violations committed by cross-trained police officers previously paid for hours they had not worked under the same firefighter program. Officials said Monday's agreement closes the matter, and the letters' authors note they don't have written proof of their accusations. However, Green said, after the meeting, he'll ask that the claims be reviewed. In a 5-2 to two vote, the council also agreed that February 20th will be the date for a committee discussion on a possible request for a proposal to firms capable of performing an external review of the Public Safety Department. Counselors Kelly Dunn and Susan DeBur dissented. Ganfield has requested the council consider the step for the sake of learning more about the current model's effectiveness and establishing trust with the public, not to dismantle any structure, but for the sake of for continuous improvement. Des Moines-based law firm Allers & Cooney, P.C., helped conduct the internal investigation involving Bostwick and other city officials, according to Green, who wouldn't name Nyman or the others involved. He said the 24408 paid to the unnamed employee has been recovered. Discussion and questions took more than an hour Monday and at times got testy between Green, members of the council, and the public because of accusations related to the situation, and allegedly minor violations of meeting procedure. Public Safety Director Craig Bertie is expected to appoint an acting fire chief sometime this month and as soon as within the week. As was pointed out during the meeting and later confirmed, the city will ultimately have two individuals on the payroll with similar salaries at the level of fire chief until October. Next, we have the story titled, Gaming Crash Course Students test out new game as developers visit Waterloo Career Center. Story filed by Donald Promnitz and begins with a photograph of a classroom with row after row of computers turned on and there's a teacher leaning over a student helping him or her with this program they're testing. Dateline Waterloo Game developers got live feedback in their latest creation, while students got a crash course in the creative process after a collaboration between Waterloo Community Schools and an Iowa City startup company. On Tuesday morning, students were brought to the Waterloo Career Center to meet the CyberCAD team. While there, they got to test out a new game that teaches them the ins and outs of cybersecurity. According to CyberCAD Chief Executive Officer Aaron Warner, the point of the outing for them was to get feedback on their game before it officially gets released. Meanwhile, students got to learn more about programming the game designing process, which Waterloo Community Schools spokeswoman Akwe Niji said benefits them. Quote, It's a win-win and, I think, for us, the world of education, Ninji said. We're constantly looking for ways to engage students, With real life applications, especially in the digital world, really wanting students to become creators rather than consumers as much as possible. The game itself revolves around cybersecurity, using interactive play to teach users how to best avoid phishing scams and to keep their data safe. Though designed first for adults to learn cybersecurity in the workplace, it's appropriate for all ages. It was developed by CyberCAD Chief Executive Officer Cameron Dayton, a veteran game developer who has worked at Electronic Arts and Blizzard with credits in popular games like Overwatch and The Call of Duty WW2. As the students sampled the game, Dayton and Chief Product Officer Jim Sherlock were getting a live feed tracking the gameplay and receiving comments from students that helped them map out ways to improve the final product. Quote, It's been very, very interesting getting the feedback and seeing what is actually entertaining our crew, what is challenging them, and where they're getting stuck, Dayton said. Quote, And this is the value of having a live testing process here. Unquote. The game also appears to have had impact on the testers, as Ava Bertram explained after her playthrough. Quote, I thought the development idea was smart, just because in today's day and age, I personally have thought about things like that, because it's important, because I get nervous of clicking at the wrong things, and I don't always know what's right and wrong, Bertram said. So I think games like this are beneficial. So I think the game is a nice touch, unquote. As for Cybercade, the company was not only able to test the product from a technical standpoint, the developers were also able to ensure that the game lived up to its intended purpose, education through entertainment. Quote, We wanted to find a way to meet people where they're most comfortable when it comes to learning, Warner said. So Cybercade is what happens when you mix cybersecurity and access to frontline immediate information about cyber with measurement and learning, as well as Cameron's world of gaming, unquote. Next, in an article written by Maria Cooper, Waterloo Council discusses potential ban on conversion therapy, Dateline Waterloo. The city of Waterloo would be the third local government in Iowa to ban conversion therapy. The city council discussed the issue during a Monday work session. Conversion therapy is defined as an attempt to change a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. Quote, "these are institutions that operate practices that lead to children contemplating at a very high level suicide and suffering from depression and anxiety" counselor Jonathan Grider said he introduced the proposed ordinance and worked with Iowa Safe Schools to create it Iowa Safe Schools offers direct services and support to students who have been bullied Quote, "we have had students who have been victimized by conversion in Black Hawk County, full stop, Damian Thompson, Iowa Safe Schools Director of Public Policy and Communication, said over a Zoom call during the meeting. Thompson said students in the area asked for this to be implemented. Grinder said he received some comments from Waterloo residents asking if conversion therapy was even happening in the area. Quote, it's clear that it's happening, Grinder said. We don't know the specific numbers because the institutions using the practice don't operate with big, bright neon signs, Councilor Dave Bozen said some constituents who have contacted him by email don't believe this should be an issue taken on by the city. Greider said that because the law enforcement is the highest health provider in Waterloo, it's a city issue. Quote, it impacts our operations, Greider said. But more fundamentally, as leaders, we have a responsibility to do what's right for the young people in our community, if passed by the council, Waterloo would be the third government entity in Iowa to ban the practice. The city of Davenport and Lynn County are the other two. The ordinance would prohibit conversion therapy and be enforced through the city attorney's office. The proposed document states the city attorney would mail the medical or mental health professional who was in violation written notice to immediately cease and desist. If the health professional doesn't immediately stop, the violation would become a municipal infraction pursuant to city code. City attorney Martin Peterson said he does have concerns with the ordinance possibly being subject to preemption if it is adopted. Preemption is when a higher level of government could limit the power of a lower level of government to regulate an issue. Quote, mental health counselors are highly regulated by the state of Iowa, Peterson said. My belief is that if this ordinance were adopted by Waterloo, it may not survive a challenge based on a field preemption basis. Greider noted that Linn County, which has a similar framework to the proposed ordinance, has not faced any pushback on the issue. As for Davenport, the ban is included in its human rights ordinances. Many constituents speaking during the public comment period of the regular council meeting following the work session brought up bills in the legislature that they say are against LGBTQ plus population. Quote, right now at the state level, there are a lot of bills that are anti-LGBTQ. Resident Sam Blatt said, quote, We need to denounce conversion therapy and set that precedent where people are actively trying to destroy us at a state level. Councilor Nia Wilder said, As an openly gay woman, she supports Greider's proposed ordinance. Quote, conversion therapy is definitely terrible, and this is something we have to denounce as a city, Wilder said. But there has to be more. It can't be where we stop. Unquote. During the work session, Councillor Bosen said at this time he cannot support the proposed ban, due to potential legal implications. In 2020, the council condemned the practice and approved a resolution encouraging the legislature and Governor Kim Reynolds to approve a law banning therapists from subjecting minors to the practice. Now let's turn the page to the Cedar Valley section. And the top story is Green announces decision not to run for a third term as Cedar Falls mayor. The story was written by Andy Malone and begins with a photograph and it shows Mayor Rob Green sitting in an open Cadillac convertible waving to the crowd and wearing a bright green blazer. Dateline Cedar Falls. Mayor Rob Green announced Tuesday that he will not seek a third term in office. Since 2020, he's been mayor of the most wonderful town he's ever experienced, Green said in a Facebook post. However, he has hinted in the past about not wanting to be a career mayor. Before taking the helm, he was elected as an at-large councilman, beginning his tenure in 2018. Quote, the mayor role is fascinating and immensely rewarding, but I'm feeling very convicted about the cost of being mayor on my family, wrote Green. Quote, this fall, my daughter will start her senior year of high school and my son will be entering his high school years as well. This is precious, irreplaceable time for my family. My wife, Jocelyn, and the kids have already sacrificed so much for me to serve in elected office for six years. The Post reaffirmed his previously stated intention of running again for mayor at a future time. Green also has expressed an interest in considering a run for council seat again, although that was not addressed in his post. For now, he's planning to store away his gravel, prepare for a successor, and return to the University at Northern Iowa in 2024 to work as an information architect and college instructor after completing his current two-year term On December 31st, Green, who has been on an unpaid leave of absence from you and I, also said he'll begin work on a doctorate degree. Green's departure would prove even more significant if Dave Sires, Susan DeBurr, and Simon Harding, the three council members whose terms expire at the end of the year, follow through on previous hints that they will not seek re election. None has formally announced that decision yet. But that could ultimately mean a much less experienced council in 2024, with most of its members being in the position three years or less. Darrell Cruz, who started his first term in 2018, would have the most experience. De Burr, who has been on the council since 2004, is currently the longest serving member. Green plans to run again for mayor when he and his wife are empty nesters, he said. Quote, in the intervening years, I look forward to continuing in local civics education and outreach and serving as a cheerful and apolitical resource for my successors, particularly as they first transition into this challenging role, he said. new mayors need all the help they can get, unquote. Next, we have a story written by Melody Parker. Romance at the Heart of Valentine's Concert at Hearst, featuring violin and piano ensemble. Dateline Cedar Falls. As one of the world's most romantic instruments, the violin has the sublime power to zing hearts with Cupid's golden dart. Quote, the violin has always had multiple personalities since its very beginning. It's a virtuosic instrument that expresses the beauty of the human soul. How the violin sings has a unique and really beautiful sound, like the human voice, and it has its own soul as well said Eric Rode, director of orchestral studies at the University of Northern Iowa. Violinist Rode will be joined by and I School of Music faculty artists Sang Ko on violin and Sean Botkin on piano in a romantic Valentine's Day concert at 7.30 p.m. Tuesday at the Hearst Center for the Arts, 304 West Surley Boulevard. The Cedar Valley Chamber Music Ensemble will perform an evening of classical music from the Romantic era. Refreshments will follow the free concert. Quote, it's such a nice opportunity, the perfect date for people who want to do something special, and it's a nice chance for us to share some of the music we love. It will be an elegant, lovely evening, said Rode. The ensemble will showcase a variety of repertoire, such as Morskowski's lush suite for two violins and piano. Quote, one of the reasons we programmed this piece is it's very romantic, in a romantic style, but to me it is the interplay between the two violins that is like conversation, said Ko. Several pieces written by Australian-born American violinist and composer Fritz Kressler, known for his expressive and romantic phrasing, are on the program along with music by Norwegian composer and pianist Edward Craig, considered a leading Romantic-era composer. Ralph Vaughan Williams' Pastoral, The Lark Ascending, will be performed by Coe. Quote, it alludes to a lark flying the way we perceive birds in flight. Every time I play it, it captures the fleeting moments of life that are special. Love is like that, Coe said. Listeners, At this time, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 8, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Richard Lewis Frizzle was born May 24, 1933, in Durant, Mississippi. He was the son of the late Sylvester and D.D. Frizzle, Jr. and Josephine Rogers. He departed This Earthly Life on Saturday, February fourth, 2023, at the Unity Point Health Allen Hospital in Waterloo, Iowa, at 9.24 p.m. of Natural Causes. He married Mary Lou Montgomery, on December 24, 1964, and they were later divorced. R. L., as he was affectionately known to his friends and relatives, confessed Christ in his early childhood and was baptized at West Hill CME Church in Durant, Mississippi. He was educated at Balter School in Holmes County, Mississippi. In 1952, he moved to Detroit, Michigan. While residing in Detroit, he was employed at America's automaker, Detroit Chrysler. However, because of Detroit's continuous economic hardships in the 1950s, Richard decided to leave Detroit and move to Waterloo, Iowa. In a short time after arriving in Waterloo, Iowa, he was hired at the John Deere Waterloo plant, retiring in 1990 after 30 years of dedicated employment. Before his death, Richard was a longtime member of Payne Memorial AME Church, located in Waterloo, Iowa. After retirement, Richard's hobbies included hunting, bicycling, as well as walking at the Young Arena for exercise. His favorite pastime also included spending quality time on weekends with his brothers, Sammy and Ira, at their favorite restaurant, Perkins, usually once per month. He had a special bond with his daughter, Angela. Together, they could be found just about anywhere, especially over the last few years of his life, like a modern-day Bonnie and Clyde. A special thank you goes to Richard's caregiver, Queen, who was faithfully by his side over the last several years. Wake services for R.L. will be held on Friday, February 10, 2023, at 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m., with a 6 o'clock p.m. time of sharing at Locke at Tower Park, 4140 Kimball Avenue, Waterloo, Iowa. Funeral services will be held on Saturday, February eleventh, 2023, at 11 a.m. at Payne AME Church, 1044 Mobile Street, Waterloo, Iowa. Memorials may be directed to the family at 1728 Dearborn Avenue, Waterloo, Iowa, 50707, where they will receive friends. at Tower Park is in charge of arrangements. Their phone number is area code 319-233-3146. Online condolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Next in Davenport, Gordon Lee Muller, 76, of Davenport, died Saturday, February fourth, 2023, at Genesis East in Davenport, Iowa. Gordy was born in Waterloo, Iowa on August 22, 1946, to John and Sophia Hens Muller. He graduated from Dyke High School in 1964 and the University of Northern Iowa in 1967 with a degree in mathematics. His entire teaching career was spent in the Pleasant Valley, Iowa school system and throughout his career served as the chief negotiator for several local teachers' unions. Gordy was an avid reader and gardener with a deep connection to the land and somewhat of a pet whisperer. An informal celebration of life will be held at the Credit Island Lodge in Davenport on Saturday, March 4, 2023, from 2 to 5 o'clock p.m., with a short program at 4 o'clock p.m. Any donations may go to the QC Animal Shelter or Scott County Humane Society. Next, in Waterloo, Virginia, known as Ginny Hurtado, 95 of Waterloo, died Sunday, February 5, 2023, at New Aldea Lifescapes in Cedar Falls. Virginia was born on April 11, 1927, in Waterloo, Iowa, the daughter of Trinidad and Maria Gonzalez. She was raised and educated in the Waterloo School District and graduated from East High School with the class of 1945. In 1960, she went on to graduate from the School of Practicing Nursing and would spend 24 years working as an LPN before retiring in 1989. Before retirement, she was employed by Ear, Throat Association. On May 11, 1946, Virginia was united in marriage to Jesse Hurtado at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Waterloo. Virginia was very active in her church and was a past president of Rosary Society at St. Mary's. She also volunteered at Allen Hospital and Waterloo Schools. She was a member of VFW, Eagles, Latin America Club, and a singing group at Waterloo Center of Arts she always felt blessed with her family and friends, which included everyone in her church parish. Services for Jenny will be at 11 a.m. Friday, February 10th, at Haggerty wachoff grarup Funeral Service on South Street, with burial in Mount Olivet Cemetery. Public visitation from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. Thursday, February 9th, where there will be a 4 p.m. rosary, Visitation is also one hour prior to the service, both at the funeral home. Memorials? In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the family. Online condolences may be left at www.hagertywychoffgrowrup.com. Next, we have Jared Keith Ahrens, who was born on May 29, 1980, in Waterloo, Iowa. He passed away on February 3, 2023. A celebration of life is planned for Saturday, February eleventh, twenty twenty-three, from two o'clock to seven o'clock p.m. with a service starting at three thirty p.m. at Three Sisters Barn, two one six six three, R Avenue in Dallas Center, Iowa, five zero zero six three. A casual dress code is encouraged. The son of Bruce and Joy aarons he graduated from Waterloo West High School participating and excelling as a four-sport athlete during his high school years. Jared continued his education at Iowa Central and later Hawkeye Community College. Jared relocated to West Des Moines working for DTN. He later went to work for Wells Fargo. During these years, Jared met the absolute love of his life, Tasha Mart, and her daughter, Keeley. Jared and Tasha married on October twenty-fourth, 2020. Jared was a mama's boy and always proud to admit it. His ability to live and love were unmatched. When picked up from school as a kid, Jared's response to Bruce when asked about his day was always, best day ever, dad. Jared kept that energy with him throughout his life. He never met a stranger and when telling stories could never land the plane. As a lifelong fan, Jared loved his Iowa State Cyclones, Chicago Cubs, and Chicago Bears. Jared also enjoyed hunting and fishing, which included many fishing trips to Alaska. Family was extremely important to Jared, whether it was holiday gatherings or at the family cabin in Clear Lake. He cherished every opportunity to spend time with loved ones. Death does not get the last word. In lieu of flowers and plants, the family requests that we create hope through change. Success is closer than you think. Please consider making a donation in memory of Jared to support mental health resources, and there's a GoFundMe account set up for this purpose. If you or someone you know is struggling, please call 988. In Council Bluffs, Marilyn Jean Harris, age 84, of Council Bluffs, Iowa, passed away February 4, 2023. She was born June 11, 1938, in Grundy Center, Iowa, to Harmon and E. Joyce Morris Boyke. Marilyn was raised on a farm outside of Dyke, Iowa, and graduated from Dyke High School in 1956. She worked at a variety of settings, including as a candy striper, in clerical positions, as a daycare provider, and retired from Douglas County Hospital working in the business office. She enjoyed reading, being with family and friends, and was one who has always made friends easily. One of her greatest joys in her life included being with children and babies, but especially her own grandbabies. Visitation for Marilyn will be at 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock p.m. on Saturday, February eleventh, at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home, 1221 North 16th Street in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Next is Bonnie Maxine Smith who was born on September 12, 1924, in Cedar Falls, Iowa, to John and Viral Thomas Hildori. She graduated from Cedar Falls High in 1942. Bonnie passed away February fourth at Bartle's Nursing Home in Waverly, Iowa, at the age of 98. She was a member of the First Presbyterian Church in Cedar Falls since 1942 and was baptized there in April Of 1931. Bonnie was an avid reader and loved the outdoors. In retirement, she enjoyed swimming laps, ice skating, bike riding, and rollerblading. Her greatest enjoyment came from her family, especially her grandchildren and great grandchildren. Memorial donations may be sent to Stan or Paula. A park bench will be purchased and placed in one of Bonnie's favorite parks. A private service will be held at a later date. Next is Marjorie Morrison, 93, of Solon, formerly of Waterloo, and she passed away on February 3, 2023. A private family service will be held. Marjorie was born in Waterloo, Iowa, to Edwin and Alma Harder Eichelberg. She married Robert Aldrich, and together they raised their two sons before later divorcing. She then married Lauren Morrison on September 16, 1976, in Waterloo. She worked for the Waterloo Community School District as a secretary to the superintendent for many years. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be made to the family to be distributed to organizations that were important to Marjorie. Here the Courier lists two death notices. Gerald J. Jerry Fraser Jr., 81 of Old Wine, died Monday, February 6, 2023, at Mercy One, Old Arrangements for Jerry are with Jameson Smith's Funeral Home in Old And Maureen S. Kimmerley, 58, of Independence, died Sunday, February 5, 2023, at ABCM Nursing and Rehab Center in Independence. Arrangements for Maureen are with White Funeral Home in Independence. That's all the obituaries in today's paper. Now let's turn to the opinion section. This first editorial comes to us from the Des Moines Register titled, This Is What's Really Happening at Iowa Public Schools. And it was written by Matt Priest, who is a literary interventionist at Waukee High School. What is happening in public schools that makes this even a topic of debate? That was the question posed to me recently. The short answer would be nothing. There's nothing happening in public schools that is causing this, but that simplifies things too much. I've given a good deal of thought to this. What follows is my answer, but it's not just related to the voucher debate. It's related to the constant attack on public schools in our state. I come from a family of teachers. I am friends with many people who work in public schools. I cannot sit quietly by when our calling, when our life's work, when schools and people we hold dear are being hit with such a barrage of hurtful legislation and rhetoric. So, here you go. Here's what's happening. The population is growing more diverse, even in rural parts of our state. Our public schools reflect that diversity. Factors such as religion, ethnicity, gender, race, language, giftedness, disabilities, learning behavioral and physical family makeup, socioeconomic status, access to resources, access to preschool, responsibilities at home, homelessness, the need to work, history with mental health, violence in or out of the home, drugs, alcohol, and on and on. Public schools are doing everything they can to be student-ready, ready to meet the needs of all students, In the best way possible. And if that's still too simple, let's dig in. No matter how you slice it, public schools have been ready for just about anything. I've seen it. I've seen the kid who fails because he's bored, but rises because the teacher realizes it and gets him into the tag program. I've seen the blind, deaf, and mute student learn to communicate because of the love of teachers and associates. I've seen the patience of teachers. Who work with kids who throw excrement on the walls, I've seen the persistence of a teacher who stays late and comes early to help ensure a student with deficit writing skills meets the standard to pass. I've seen counselors work tirelessly with at-risk kids on the verge of dropping out and then hug them when they walk across the stage diploma in hand. I've seen the LGBTq plus transfer student who was bullied at a previous school thrive in a new place because they felt safe. I've seen the school to work program for special ed students where they get on the job training for work they continue after graduation. I've seen the kid who hadn't read a single book cover to cover because he didn't think he could read turn into a kid who reads four books in a month. Yes, I've seen many kids like that in my nearly 30 years teaching. Most will never step foot in a private school because the private school won't take them, even if they do have that shiny $7,600 cash gift from our legislature to help offset tuition. Because those private schools don't have to do what public schools have to do. Be student ready for all kinds of kids from all walks of life. Here's the thing. Being student ready has gotten harder. An insidious agenda has made it harder. For schools to do their work, they need financial support. Generally, folks agree a 4% increase in aid each year would be close. In the past 10 years, the average has been around 2%. And what has happened in that time? Public schools have continually been tasked with doing more with less. Those in power have played the long game. Don't fund schools at the level needed. Schools will be negatively impacted. Schools won't perform as well. People will be frustrated. Eventually, they can shift money to private schools while they continue to underfund public schools under the guise of giving people more choice. Case in point, last month, they haughtily pointed out the financial strength of our state, allowing them to fund the voucher bill. Then they turned around and said, They couldn't afford to give more than 2% to 3% to public schools because they need to be careful with the budget. And as sinister as it is, it's not the only thing that has led to this. The other issue is some people don't like everything our schools have to be ready for. Our schools don't look like them, don't sound like them, don't act like them, don't do learning the way they think learning should be done. So instead of realizing our schools are a picture of the world where teachers and staff are doing the best they can to help the kids be ready for the world, they go after the school, which is really their way of going after the world, because the world doesn't look like them, doesn't sound like them, doesn't act like them, doesn't do life the way they think life should be done. But it's hard to go after the world. Instead, they go after something where they feel they have power to do it armed with a false narrative filled with more crap than a litter box and promoted by organizations and people with money to spread it. And those organizations and people will keep trying to bring down public schools and the towns and people that depend on them until they can sit on top of the heap smiling down at the whitewashed history and homogeneity while they count their stacks of money. I hope it's not too late when people finally realize How ugly this whole thing is, how unaligned it is with the Christian values so many espouse. Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. Heaven isn't homogeneous. Neither are public schools. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Public schools are called to do the same. Public schools aren't the problem. Teachers and staff aren't the problem. The students aren't the problem. The problem is the people coming after them. Next, we have a piece from the New York Times How Will Joe Biden Be Remembered in 50 Years? written by Brett Steffens. A half century from now, Joe Biden's presidency will be remembered, as most presidencies are, with a short summary sentence. It will read He defeated Donald Trump, and blank. It won't be the infrastructure bill, the rate of inflation or the Inflation Reduction Act, which, so long as China, India, South Africa, and other countries continue building huge coal-fired plants, probably won't lead to a major reduction in global greenhouse gas emissions. It won't be Hunter's emails, nor will it be whether he served one term or two. What will matter in 2073 is whether he reversed the global tide of democratic retreat that began long before his presidency, but reached new lows with the Taliban's victory in Afghanistan and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If Biden can turn it, it will be a historic achievement. If not, much darker days will lie ahead. He has a real chance. On the positive side, there is last week's announcement of 31 M1 Abrams tanks for Ukraine, unlocking German Leopard 2 tanks be sent as well. The decision brings Ukraine a significant step closer to eventual NATO membership, to which it has more than earned the right. Then there's the apparent end of attempts to revive the Iran nuclear deal and a visibly tougher posture by the administration toward Tehran's misogynistic tyrants, including last week, the largest ever joint military exercise with Israel, and there is the president's repeated public statements that the U.S. will defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese attack. Had Biden failed to say so, the island would be an even graver danger than it is now. Closer defense ties to Japan and Australia reinforce the point. Each of these steps evokes the cautious but purposeful way in which Biden's political hero, Franklin Roosevelt, came to Britain's aid in 1941 with Lend-Lease while preparing America for the possibility of war. They came on top of Biden's other foreign policy successes, none of which were a given at this time of year. Transatlantic unity in the face of Russian aggression and energy blackmail. Finland and Sweden on their way toward NATO membership, the decimation of Russian military forces in Ukraine thanks largely to NATO weaponry and intelligence. But Biden, like FDR, will not be judged by how he managed those crises at their start. What counts is how he brings them to an end. For Ukraine, the minimal American objective is to deny Russia any gains from its aggression in the past year. Anything less, and Vladimir Putin will be able to claim victory, freeze the conflict, and bide his time against an enfeebled and demoralized Ukrainian state. For Iran, the objective is to stop the regime from reaching a nuclear breakout. For Taiwan, it is to arm the island to the point where it can defend itself, by itself, against Chinese invasion, while preserving a viable American option to intervene. On all this, the administration Is a portrait in ambivalence. 31 tanks for Ukraine are better than none, even if they won't arrive on the battlefield for months. So, why not announce 62 tanks or 124, which would bring Kyiv much closer to the 300 it says it needs to win? The old argument that these tanks are beyond Ukraine's capabilities to operate is now inoperative. So is the argument that we must take care not to provoke Russia. Putin has shown that he is provoked by the weakness of his enemies, not by their strength. It's time to arm Ukraine with the arms it needs to win quickly, including F-16s, not just to survive indefinitely. As for Iran, what's the administration's policy now that it acknowledges negotiations for a renewed nuclear deal have failed? Biden has so far remained mostly silent, Maybe he's hoping for a return to bargaining now that the protest movement seems to be receding. But he isn't likely to get an acceptable deal from a regime that has only moved much closer to Russia's orbit in the last year. Is there a plan B? There had better be. An Iran that crosses the nuclear threshold, as North Korea did in the 1990s, will be followed by nuclear proliferation elsewhere in the Middle East a curse that will haunt successive generations of Americans. Surely this is not the legacy Biden wants, a region in which four or five nuclear powers prone to religious fanaticism are at daggers drawn with one another in ever-shifting balances of power. And Taiwan. Last year, the administration approved a little more than $1 billion in arms sales to Taipei, which is a small fraction of what the island will need to defend itself against invasion. Last week, Air Force General Mike Minahan, head of the Air Mobility Command, sent a memo to his officers with a blunt warning. Quote, I hope I am wrong. He wrote about the prospect of United States getting into a war with China. My gut tells me we will fight in 2025. Unquote. What if Minahan isn't wrong? Can the administration honestly say it's doing enough? In 50 years, they'll know. Biden's sentence could be, quote, he defeated Trump, and then he defeated Putin, Khomeini, and Xi. Or it could be, quote, he defeated Trump, but then he came up slightly but fatally short. Time will tell. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 8th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember that you can access a recording of today's reading and those of other newspapers around the state on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.